0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Better Words. It's Caitlin here from Just a Bookish Babe. Um, Michelle and Jack are still overseas, but they'll be back soon. They're currently in the UK and have, of course, sent me another little clip. Um, My little update, um, I've been pretty busy, actually, um, just with some work stuff and other things. I don't really know, but I feel like I have been busy and that's got me stuck in a little bit of a reading slump. Um, I'm just not really sure what to read next, which sounds so stupid because, of course, I have lots of unread books on my bookshelf, but um, I'm hoping to kick that um, and try a few new books and see what sticks, but in trying to kick that, I have also started rewatching Friends and re-watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so <laughs> I'm just revisiting the TV I love. I'm really not very good at doing these introductions by myself, so I think I'll just let Michelle and Jack do the talking, and we'll get to our interview right after that.
1: Hi guys, it's Michelle. And Jack. And we are in London. Finally. (laughs) On the last leg of our trip, um, which is sort of sad. We'll be sad to leave behind our adventures, but we are excited to come home and see Percy and all our friends and family.
2: Yeah, it'll be good to get back into a routine. actually missing work.
1: <laughs> um. So when we recorded last time, we were still in Ireland. We had the most magnificent stay in this gorgeous little wooden cabin um, on these people's property. And they had the most beautiful dog called Barney. He was so gorgeous.
2: Mm, he was a black, black no, chocolate lab. lab
1: yeah. He was so cute and so friendly. He just came up and, like, sat on me. It was so cute. Um, so we did lots of walking, relaxing, reading.
2: Yeah, lots of reading.
1: Jack is reading his new J.R.R. Tolkien book.
2: Mm. Yeah, uh, Children of Hurin, it's called. Uh, it's one of his novels um, before The Hobbit. So it's yeah set in the first age, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I'm currently reading, I've actually read most of it pretty much on the train from Hastings to London, um, a book called Ice Cream for Breakfast by Laura Jane Williams, um, which Grace Latter gave me. Um, It's a really good book and I'm going to get Jack to read it too because it's just about rediscovering the childlike elements of our personality, I guess, not being childish, but Um, being childlike and embracing some of the things that children do which is really interesting. Uh, So since we last recorded too we have spent a brilliant time with our friend Grace in Hastings and we went to Brighton and we went to a Harry Potter shop in Brighton which was really fun and we went to this place called Chocky Wocky Doodah which was a TV show. Um, it was
2: amazing. The, as well. the cakes, which is terrific to see how they build them all from chocolate.
1: Yeah, so all the cakes are made out of chocolate. It's incredible. Um, So there are, like, clips on YouTube and stuff of some of their creations. It's pretty amazing. It's always packed with people. Uh, we had some... We just ate in Brighton, didn't we? Just lots mm. and lots of food.
2: Yeah, I went to a lot of different cafes and some vegan cafes.
1: We had the food. most amazing... Baked potatoes, as well. Like mine was with falafel, and you had like the chili one. Mm. Oh, it was so good. Um, so yeah, we spent a lot of time on the pebble beaches and by the seaside. We are here for the heatwave, um, and you know you think we'd be like used to it being Aussies, but actually it is really quite hot. Um, Especially n-
2: inside because they're not made, their houses aren't made for the heat, so they're. Very hot and there's no fans, no aircons, hardly anywhere. So,
1: the houses Definitely are built to retain fun. the heat as well for the cold weather, so it's super stuffy inside, um, and just yeah, ridiculously hot. We both got quite tanned, um, on our on our beach days, mm. <laughs> um. So yeah, we just had a great time, just eating all the food and having fun with friends, um, meeting Grace's family as well and her gorgeous cat, Harvey. Um, yeah, so that, that was really, really fun. And, and, their,
2: and their little rabbit?
1: Yeah, it was Butternut.
2: I can't remember what his name was, <laughs> but it was pretty cute.
1: Uh, it was so cute. So, yeah, we had lots of fun. We were treated like family and we were really, really grateful for our time with them. Um, so today, our first day in London, first full day in London, We are catching up with more friends Um, and then we are going to some museums and tonight we are going to go see Matilda,
3: which
2: Michelle has been bragging about to me ever since she went to the last show, so I'm only expecting great things.
1: (laughs) Um, And of course, that is also like Grace's favourite show, so we were both like, it's going to be amazing and Jack's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to listen to the soundtrack 10 million times again. Uh, So really excited for that, seeing something on the West End. And then tomorrow, our wonderful friend Jasmine arrives. And Jasmine um, is my friend from Oxford who I stayed with last time I was over here. So it's nice to be reunited. And we're going to do some more touristy stuff. We're going to go book shopping, of course. And um, then on Thursday night, we have another little meet up with some more friends. um, Made through Bookstagram as well. So, yeah, very, very touristy and it, it sort of feels like a totally different holiday because now we're just like lots of friend catch-ups and lots of fun with people and it's it does feel like a completely a nice new holiday. holiday. Yeah. Um, we are still addicted to Bake Off as well. It is amazing.
2: Season two. Right? Yeah, we're up to season
1: two. two. Uh, it's so good. And I'm trying to think what else we watched. I feel like we watched something else.
2: Mm. You watched the Cable Guy?
1: Oh yeah, the Cable Guy with um Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick, directed by Ben Stiller in nineteen ninety seven. And I think the best bit was when he was like, "One day people will integrate like their homes and their phones, and you'll be able to have like one screen doing this and one screen doing that." Which I thought for like I, when he said that, I was like, "I'm gonna have to look this up." Like when was this made? So that was it. it was okay, but like I wouldn't watch it again. Um. And I still think the only Jim Carrey movie I really loved is The Truman Show. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of, yeah. Mm. A little bit sad to be missing out on a couple of really great book events that Grace is hosting um, later in the month because they sound so amazing. Um, so, yeah, that that will be... for for people who are in London and able to get to them that will be really fantastic but I just can't emphasize enough how beautiful it was to be able to spend time with friends I've made from the internet like it just blows my mind that people that I met through Twitter or Instagram have become real life friends and it's just amazing and beautiful and I love the internet for that for all its faults like it has done so much as well and I mean Caitlin and I were friends already but it's allowed us to meet more people through this very podcast and to to get the chance to talk to some of our favorite authors about books and like who would have thought that we would have got to do that like that's just a dream come true for us so I know Caitlin probably thinks the same way that we were just yeah so lucky to have been able to make friends like this through our podcast But next week, we will be at home. We'll be very tired, but we will be at home. Um, And I'm sure by next week as well, you'll be able to hear Percy yapping in the background again.
2: Yeah, (laughs) in his old
1: ways. (laughs) Um, Until then, happy reading. Bye. Bye. This week, we're welcoming our first male guest on the podcast. Our guest is a lover of theatre and has written plays and musicals before turning his hand at historical fiction with his debut novel, Palace of Tears. His second novel, The Opal Dragonfly, was released by Alan and Unwin earlier this year. As well as writing historical fiction, our guest has researched and written several critically acclaimed war documentaries. Welcome to Better Words, Julian Leverdale.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Lovely to be here.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful to have our first male guest. <laughs>
0: yes, I
3: actually I'm, I'm said honoured.
0: <laughs> yes, well, I know I actually said to Michelle that I wasn't sure if she was going to mention that you were our first male guest because it's not wasn't really deliberate. It just kind yeah, of worked out happened
1: that, that way. way. <laughs> but
3: <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, Well, I'm still still very honoured. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Um, so before we get into talking all things books, um, we both love theatre. Um, Caitlin's been in a lot of musicals and so we would really love to hear more about your relationship with theatre and like your first experiences with theatre and when you kind of thought this is something that I'd like to, I'd like to write for and I'd like to Mm. be involved in.
3: Well, it goes as far back as my parents actually met in the theatre. How's that for... Uh,
0: oh, that's nice. <laughs> I know.
3: My, uh, it was amateur theatre down... Uh, well, I think it, my father started directing theatre in Melbourne in the 50s, 1950s, um, and my parents met at a little theatre company um, in Sydney, and so I was uh, sort of a theatre baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So and, and look, our family always went to the theatre. Um, you know, all through the '60s and '70s, when I was growing up, theatre was a lot more affordable then too. I think, and um, and I loved it so much. I would go once or twice a week when I was a student. At university, And in fact, I studied a theatre degree at the University of New South Wales. So that was my major, was in theatre studies and the history of theatre. Um, at that time, I wasn't a great actor, but I did, you know, I liked playing small comedy roles. Yeah. I was in lots of um, uh, shows on campus, both at New South Wales Uni and at Sydney University. I was in one of the longest running, oh, yeah. not, uh, well, when I say I was in one of the longest-running musicals, we did a version of one of the longest-running musicals called The Fantastics, which is still running on Broadway. When I was last in New York, I went and had a look at the theatre where it's still running some 30 or 40 years later. Um, so I'm a bit of a musical tragic, you know, love song time, and... Um, uh, have been to see Book of Mormon several times.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. and um, Well, we're we, certainly we jealous def- of that. Yeah. Um, our, I guess access to more professional theatre is a bit harder to get because we live in central Queensland. And yes. I'm definitely jealous that you went to the theatre all the time as a student, definitely not affordable <laughs> as a student now. Yeah. No,
3: no, <laughs> even with the discounts. So, look, the lovely thing that's happened recently, I, I tried to write a bit for the theatre in my – youth. Um, In fact, I had a collaboration with a very talented musician in Melbourne, a guy called Danny Katz, and we tried to write the great Australian musical. We actually got some (laughs) funding for that and um, we put on a workshop production in Melbourne and that was attended by people uh, who loved, you know, liked it well enough. Um, but we never really got it up professionally. Um, but it was, you know, terrific collaboration and I had great fun doing that. Then I left it alone for many years and just recently, li- literally last year, I have started writing for the theatre again, um, thanks to a local director and local theatre company. And I won, I was one of three scripts that won a local play competition recently with a play that had a performed reading at a local venue uh, literally last week and that was a blast. It was so lovely working with actors again and a director.
0: Congratulations.
3: Yeah. Thank you. And I should say it's quicker to write a play than to write a novel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. Yeah.
1: Yeah, is it it different, you know, in the in the writing process too, because you're not I guess, having to fill in all the blanks, essentially, because that's, you know, yes. where the, the actors come in.
3: Yes, yes, yes. And, in fact, that's something I had to learn, in a way, is not to, tr- not to fill in all the gaps. Because <laughs> you do yeah. that in a novel, you know, you, you, you think of their internal monologue, you think about what the room looks like and how they see it. and So I had to leave space for the actors to interpret, and that was amazing, and they often showed me things I hadn't even thought of. Um, and, of course, it's hugely dialogue-driven, But I will say as a novelist, um, and it's something I'm still learning, that that's a great way to discover your character is to write them a piece of dialogue. And there's nowhere to hide then. That's how you find out what they think. Once they start talking, um, you then know a lot about them. So those worlds are not completely different. They do overlap. You still have to try and imagine your character and their mental landscape. And you do that for characters in a play as well what's lovely about theatre is you have to think theatrically. So, you actually have to think about things like costume change times. How long have you given people yeah, to exactly.
0: change their we'll costume? have to have time to get off stage and come back to the next scene. <laughs>
3: exactly. There's stuff like that, you know, which you really got to think about. And even I even sort of put in lighting cues and spots and how I would like the whole thing to work dynamically in terms of lighting, you know, so revealing someone on the side of the stage. So, people have a phone call with each other. They'll both stand in spotlights. Just, it's just a lovely different way of visualising the final thing, although that's ultimately up to the director, of course, to decide all that.
0: Yeah, um, well, that is something else, I guess, about writing for theatre is like you have to leave room for the actors but also the director, sets, yeah. costumes, lighting, all of that sort it's of It's so of much of more it.
1: collaborative than sitting down and writing your novel, which is so much more internal and yeah. I guess isolated
3: Yes, yes, yes. It's the famously loneliest profession in some ways, (laughs) Uh, although I am very blessed in that my wife is a novelist Mm -hmm. and um, so we do have each other as to watch each other's backs, if you like, and give each other encouragement through what is a very challenging career, very rewarding, amazingly rewarding, but also challenging. So we are both each other's first readers and I'd say every day we sit down, you know, first thing, have a cup of coffee and talk about books, <laughs> talk <laughs> about, you know, what what are people reading, you know, what's doing well and talk a little bit about our own work, although we're very careful not to reveal too much because that very first read of a manuscript is so precious, you know, mm-hmm. that first reaction has got to be completely from the heart. Um, mm-hmm. So, you don't want to preempt that. I've learned that <laughs> yeah, over yes. the years.
0: Spoil it, I guess, yes. in a way.
3: And also, you know, I say this to other people who want to write, don't give the energy away. A lot of people will spend time talking about their project and, you know, what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. Um, you know, it's you've got to have the discipline to just get on with it and, and not share it too much because, in a way, you can also be pecked to death by, you know, everyone giving you feedback. It can actually defeat that energy you need to write the whole thing to get on with it. So you do have to be a bit secretive and hide away.
1: yeah Yeah. actually that's really interesting i've heard this talked about on a couple of creative podcasts that and i think it may have been elizabeth gilbert who wrote eat pray love who was talking about Mm. it on a podcast saying that when you do share your idea sometimes that can give you the endorphin rush and everything of actually doing it so people will talk about it but then don't Not actually do, do it because you get the reaction. Nobody yep. has the reaction yeah, of the you work. actually doing it. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> yep. It's it's called delaying gratification. You really have yeah. to have that discipline to delay gratification. And um, those first few reads, even from your, you know, your publisher and your editor, they're very precious. You know, in in, in the publishing game these days, you get that first read, the one that might, might get you published. Um, that's you've got to be in very good shape for that. Um, and then, you know, you, you may get um, two rounds of editing. You'll get your structural edit that'll look at the shape of the book overall, and then you get your line edit. Each of those are incredibly precious. So, And you've got to be strong enough to take the criticism, you know, and you welcome it, in fact. Someone said to me, A while ago when I gave a a talk about my first book, they said, oh, when you're famous, you won't have to bother about being edited, you know, you'll just, you'll be so famous. And I'm going, no, no, that's not the way it works. (laughs) God, no. (laughs) That's
1: that's funny because I'm studying editing this semester at university and I just read something about that in my notes where it was like some editors can be intimidated thinking, oh, we don't have to put as much effort into this because mm-hmm. this author mm-hmm. has this reputation but that's how mistakes get made. Oh, totally. So no one is too good to be edited.
0: Oh, definitely nope. not. Can you like nope. the, you know, some incredible authors would just be like, oh, I'm so good. Let's just, here's my first draft. Let's, Let's just, just publish this. <laughs> and then
3: would
0: read it and it would be horrible. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah. No, no, so, it's, it's it is really wonderful to be taken so seriously, your work taken so seriously that – Someone will criticise it. and, and, And they demonstrate by doing that that they understand what you're trying to do. A good editor will do that. They're on board with your project. And they say, well, I know what you're trying to achieve, but maybe you could do it better this way. And they always say, this is just our suggestion, you know. Finally, you take full responsibility for the work at the end of the day. So, (laughs) <laughs> but it's a terrific process. I've, n- I've not met either of the editors who edited my books, oh, except my publisher, Annette, um, who did the big structural edit. But the, mm-hmm. in terms of the line-by-line stuff. And then there's a proofread as well, which can sometimes involve some editorial comments. I've not met them, but I do value them enormously. They're amazing yeah. people.
1: <laughs> yes, um, I. So, just before we move on from the theatre stuff, I guess because we we um, did just want to find out what your favourite production is—so, play or musical—you
3: <gasps> had to just pick one. Oh my god!
1: <laughs> I know that's hard.
3: <laughs> that is so hard. It's always the thing I just saw last week, probably. Um, oh god, that's so hard. I mean, I'm I'm loving these um, national theatre productions. You know, the English National Theatre. Um, are, are being recorded as films, and you can go and see them for a limited season. So mm. that seems ironic that I should pick something just pops into that's my a- head that's actually a filmed, you know. I mean, the <laughs> theater's finally about the live interaction. Um, mm. But I did see, oh, you know, uh, Cumberbatch in, uh, what's his name? Uh, is it, uh, what cool.
1: Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict,
3: Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. <laughs> Um, recently in a production of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You know, there's the big anniversaries happening at the moment about the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. There was an extraordinary production done, in, which, you know, as I say, I saw on film of where the two actors who played the monster and the doctor, Frankenstein, would swap roles each night. Can you imagine that? Oh, my God. yeah. So Ooh. I saw the night. The one they recorded was Cumberbatch playing the Doctor Frankenstein, and this yeah. other actor whose name's slipped my mind, playing the monster. And it was an astonishing production, just so wow. beautiful. Uh, the stagecraft was really clever and very fluid. You know, had lots of characters coming and going uh, in this Victorian e- English setting. Um, that one really stuck in my mind, and he's he's so beautiful to watch. You know, you could watch mm-hmm. him. Just stare at paint, and you'd you'd be (laughs) impressed. (laughs) Um, But in terms of live stuff, oh gosh, Um, you know, I did see Book of Mormon recently. I know it's you know so naughty and trashy and offensive and all those good things, but gosh, the stagecraft, the the, every song is so tight.
0: It's so clever.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can get to it it's it's terrific. Um so, uh, yes, yeah, so it's our sort of favorite thing in our household at the moment. <laughs> uh, a long way from historical fiction, but it's Yeah.
1: but uh, yeah. oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. A big um, so- big
3: Broadway show, fantastic. Wish I'd seen it when I was in New York. I was in New York and thought, "Oh, that sounds silly. I'm not going to go see that." And I'm like, "Oh my god, why didn't <laughs> I?" <laughs> uh, I know.
1: Um, So kind of getting back to the the writing and stuff, I'm interested in learning about your documentary writing as well. So was that what kind of sparked your interest in maybe writing historical fiction and, and getting more in depth?
3: That's a good question. And the answer is no, believe it or not. I mean, I did those back in the mid 90s. Look, probably that's where my interest, my very intense interest in Australian history started. But it Mm -hmm. took me a while to wake up and realise I could actually do historical fiction. I'm not quite sure why, but um, I came in a very roundabout way to writing the novels. But the two documentaries I did uh, for ABC television back in the mid-90s, they they came out of actually in my early 20s, my first job out of university was working for a a small publishing company and the big project we got at that time was called Australians at War and it was a collaboration between this fairly small little publishing company And uh, Time Life, uh, the big, you know, huge American publishers. Yeah, so it was in the year of the bicentennial, 1988, and there was a lot of money sloshing around for projects like this. Mm -hmm. So I cut my teeth as a, you know, I suppose a professional writer, as a, you know, an in-house staff writer doing photographic research so I'd go down to the war memorial and look through all the photos that was amazing Um, that would be incredible and also I wrote all the captions and a lot of the copy for these beautifully produced books and we did about 16 of them so it was a hell of an introduction to Australian history and a very tight little team and we worked very hard we turned these books around in three or four months um, and so I also learned to get over the fear of the blank page because you really had to turn out copy very fast. But that was the <laughs> beginning of my love of, of a, or interest in Australian history. Um, and then, yes, as a result of that, because that was all military history, um, I got approached by a TV director who said, what do you know about um, the post-war occupation of Japan? Something like 36,000 Australian men and women went and occupied Hiroshima, the province of Hiroshima, and and the city which had been, you know, atom-bombed at the end of the war. And I thought, no, I don't know anything about this. That's fascinating. So, we wrote a proposal, and the ABC came on board, and we interviewed all these people who had been, uh, you know, involved, women and men, soldiers and nurses and all sorts of people. And that was an incredible experience, you know, to go into these people's lounge rooms and sit down, they'd get out their photos and they'd talk to me about their lives. And that was a big success. It won a couple of awards. And we did a second one, which was very confronting, but interesting about a place called Sendakan, which is in um, Borneo. And it was a prisoner of war camp where two and a half thousand people went in and only six came out (laughs) and we interviewed um, three of those guys
1: that you mentioned the occupation of japan though because my grandfather actually did that and he wrote a book about it which um my family like he just wrote like it was a small published like um self-published book that he wrote because he was a photographer yeah so he um he just had so many photos. He did it like a journal and stuff. And um, I know yeah. they donated a copy to the War Museum. But yep. it's, it's so funny. Like um, my mum's writing historical fiction at the moment, so I'll have to tell her to listen to this episode particularly. But <laughs> she um, she would, would love to, to hear like more about that and, and watch that because, yeah, he, mm. he was over there and um, – yeah, just had some very interesting experiences and, and not many people know about it. It's
3: nope, it's nope. really,
1: really interesting. And I wouldn't know if it wasn't for my family connection that's either. That's fantastic.
3: No, the mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, the film we made was called The Forgotten Force because that's what they called themselves. And they mm-hmm. felt forgotten. And they didn't even get their war service in Japan recognized for a long time as part of their service. So, we were very... We were very proud that, in fact, I think our film contributed towards um, that service finally being recognised by the government. And mm. uh, Oh, that's amazing. So yeah. tell her that she should write – someone needs to write a good novel about that.
0: Yeah. <sighs> um, when it came to writing your novels, um, did you have – like the idea first, or was it some random obscure piece of research or something?
3: <laughs> Very good idea. question. Yes. Uh, well, I suppose we should start with palace tears. Yeah, they were both slightly different processes. Um, there, there was a couple of things with palace tears. One was I had a real bee in my bonnet, and it came out of those documentary days um, about the treatment of German Australians in World War One.
1: Oh, yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah. I loved that element of the book. I really – I found that so interesting. Oh,
3: thank you, yes. And uh, look, at, it, it was the sort of itch that had to be scratched for me with writing mm-hmm. that book, although there's a lot of other aspects of it. It really only sort of is the first half of the book where that dominates. But um, I actually wrote a proposal and I found in the War Memorial footage of a, what was going to be a government propaganda film Uh, justifying the internment of these people. So there's actually footage of the camps where these people were kept. And they were, unfortunately, the term that was used was concentration camps, which came to have a very different meaning, much more sinister meaning later. Anyway, all that exists is the little bits and pieces of footage. It was never assembled because the war came to an end. Anyway, I put together a proposal with this director, you know, saying this is a really important thing to remember, a chapter in Australian history of which we probably should be quite ashamed that we were prepared to persecute these people in the way we did. Some people might disagree with me about that, but I felt very strongly that uh, this was an extraordinary way to treat Australians who just happened to be of German descent and perhaps had German names and to lock them up without charging them with anything. They they never went to court or anything like that. Your neighbour could just, you know, dob you in and you end up locked up in an internment camp. Anyway, we put it actually as a proposal for, to an, a couple, number of bodies and nobody wanted to touch it. They just didn't feel it was important enough. Or one person actually said to me, oh, you know, who's going to feel sorry for Germans, <laughs> which I thought was outrageous. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, I know. So, anyway, that that bothered me for a long time. But the other aspect of Palace of Tears, of course, is the, the magnificent Hydro Majestic Hotel up at Medlow Bath. And I live in Lura, a couple of villages away and. Um, I had lived up at Blackheath, which is even closer to that building, uh, for some years. And it always was just sitting there in the back of my mind. Um, has anyone ever written a, a book using this amazingly strange, uh, magnificent building as a setting? And um, to my knowledge, no one had it, – it, a couple of books had used it in a small way, but not in a major way. Um, and originally I thought about – I knew Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had visited there, and I thought you could write a murder mystery maybe. There yeah, that would be interesting, but I didn't ever do that so in a weird sort of way, these two things that had bothered me for a long time came together in the writing of of palace of tears and and yet, I also tell the story that the opening of the book with the young girl sitting in the hedge between her cottage and the big hotel was mm. just inspired by watching someone I know sitting in a hedge as a as a young woman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, children like to sort of be a bit like cats. They like to be somewhere where they can see everybody else and uh, not be seen. <laughs> mm, and yeah. I love that image. That image really was where the whole book sprang from, funnily enough. Mm. So <laughs> um, that's how Palace of Tears worked. And then I, yes, I, I'd, I'd read this book about German internment, and I went back to that, and that gave me the beginning of the whole story, really. And look, another little element was my. My mum actually dated a young German boy in the 1950s in a country town, Mudgee, out west, and uh, she remembers how controversial that was. I mean, this is after the war, after the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's even some of elements of that in the book as well. So I was drawing on, even though it's historical fiction, I was drawing on things in my own life that I felt strongly about as well. Mm. So, so that explains, I guess, uh, Palace of Tears. <laughs> um, yeah, I can talk about Opal Dragonfly too, if you like, in terms of yes,
1: of course, be wonderful, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Opal Dragonfly. Well, that's that was probably it, it wasn't something that had been burning for years in my mind, but uh, you know, Palace of Tears got a very good reception. I mean, people really loved the book, and so yes, I started to think about another building, maybe that could be a sort of. Gothic centerpiece to a to a story, you know, could be meaningful in some way to a family. And um, I lighted on Elizabeth Bay House, which is the most extraordinary building. And I, in fact, had not ever been there even as a kid. Everyone told me about this place, so I went down there and had a look, and just thought, oh my god, this what an amazing setting for a story. And then um, that suggested immediately 19th century Sydney. And that opened up a whole other world. I'm like, oh, wow, the 19th century. I love books written in the 19th century. Um, you know, I love Austen. That's a bit cheeky, but, you know, I tried to – I did reread a lot of Austen before I wrote this book, so I thought, oh, I'm going to be really bold and try and sort of get some of the flavor of Austen in my book. Um, and also, you know, write a, quite a big, complex book with a lot of characters and try and get people to immerse themselves in that world. So that's where that came from. Um, and I also just loved the idea of a piece of jewellery that was at a family heirloom that might be cursed in some way. I just I thought that was a fantastic idea. And, uh, you know, there are some famous 19th century novels like The Moonstone um, that has a piece of jewellery as a, as a sort of thing that drives the plot. So that's kind of what brought that together. This is a book I discovered much more in research. You know, I really had to do a lot of homework to find the the atmosphere and the the things that really concerned women at that time. Um, I I think I'm very proud of the second book because I think it's much more, uh, I'm not saying the first book was unconvincing as told from the point of view of a woman, I hope, but I think Isabel, I I actually had a couple of bloggers and reviewers who mistakenly thought I was a woman writer and I was very proud of that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope um, she's convincing as a, as a female voice and her perspective mm. is convincing as a woman at that time.
0: That certainly is, I think, a big compliment because I think in more recent years as well, it's been one of those discussions about it's like, oh, well, you know, I guess like, you know, a male writing a, a female main character and the same goes for women writing male main characters. It's like, mm. oh, well, you know, how do you be convincing and how mm. do you... I guess, portray that character. So it's probably a a, a big compliment that a lot of people just thought, you know, you, I I guess like your character was so well written that they thought that you were a woman. Yes. (laughs)
3: Um, Yes, no, I took it as a compliment. And certainly readers have been very, um, no one's sort of mentioned it as a problem. You know, I mean, I hope the whole project of fiction means you can um, imagine yourself into the into the mind, oh. mindset of, uh, you know, of the opposite gender. Of
0: anyone. Yeah. yeah, definitely.
3: I've never it been a criminal. Be. I've never committed a crime, but I can imagine writing a, a criminal mindset, you know, for example.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. I'm really interested to learn, you said that you had a lot of research in this. So, with your writing process too, do you kind of write and research together or do you? Gather a bunch of research before you can even start putting those words on the page.
3: Mm, that's a good question, and the answer for both is definitely both. Um, mm. <laughs> so I've, I've started work on number three, and I've done a lot of reading already, even before I. Um, I was going to say, put pen to paper. And who puts pen to paper anymore? Um, before I go near the keyboard, um, I <laughs> yeah. now, I've now written a couple of chapters. But just to write those couple of chapters, you know, to know where the person is, to know what's going on at the time, to know what mm-hmm. they would be thinking about, um, you know, I've been researching on and off for about a year. You know, at the same time as doing um, Opal Dragonfly. So yes, I do both. I do. Uh, I feel my way into the period by reading. Um, you know, history books, obviously, um, novels written at the time. Um, So, at the moment, I'm looking at the 1930s. So, I'm reading quite a few uh, Australian women authors who wrote around that time. Um, I will uh, finally drill down and hopefully even get, I'm reading a memoir at the moment, for example, by jack Lindsay, norman Lindsay's son who lived in king's cross in the 1920s so mm-hmm. that's a terrific way of getting a really immediate feel because you know he's off to a coffee shop here or a nightclub here or, so mm-hmm. you get this incredible concrete detail but you also get a sense of what's going on in his head um for opal dragonfly it was um blanche mitchell's diary was a huge she was the youngest daughter of of uh, thomas mitchell who is a a real person who I based the main male character off and her diary was fantastic. You know, I got a real sense of going to balls and doing her language lessons and her music lessons and, and you know, her falling madly in love with handsome officers off the boats who came into Sydney and, and all this sort of thing. Even, I mean, you know, what what's great about it is anything you may have, any cliches you may have in your head about, let's say, the Victorian era, so you think of them as very, you know button down, but there's an episode in the book where they all go to Watson's Bay and they get tipsy on champagne, and she buries <laughs> her skirt in the beach. Well, that was taken directly from Blanche's diary, so that's actually that actually happened. And <laughs> you, oh, I, I love mean, that. you wouldn't you wouldn't dare make that up if you thought I'm going to write a Victorian novel. Oh my gosh, you know, yeah. we all know what the Victorians <laughs> are like. So you know, it's great to have your um, maybe slightly preset cliched ideas about a period uh, challenged by, by drilling yeah. down. But, yes, just to, to, to answer your question, yes, a um, lot of research up front. And then as you go forward in the book, and I write in a way where I have very vague idea of the story arc, I sort of kind of know where I'm going, but a lot of the time I feel like a tightrope walker crossing a an abyss. <laughs> I
1: mean, I'm sure many writers could relate to that. <laughs> oh,
3: yeah. Um, I do a lot of research as I go, you know, so uh, for Opal Dragonfly, I ended up reading more about fancy work and bazaars and women embroidering stuff and selling it um, at uh, these big fancy fairs. I read a whole book on that, uh, that, you know, I knew nothing about and it was very specialized history and it was fascinating, you know, that Um, women were regarded you know if they went out in in public even at a fancy fair where they were working for a charity and sold stuff they were that was regarded as incredibly flirtatious and forward of them to do that you know to be seen in public selling things my god you didn't do that so that whole scene in the book where you know she gets her um painting auctioned um that was a truly bold thing for her to do and she does feel a lot of mixed feelings around it, quite a bit of shame and, you know, embarrassment. Um, that, you know, she's she's so public. My God, Victorian women went to be very modest and retiring. And so um, that all came out of research. That all came out of research that I never imagined I'd do. So the lovely thing is, you know, the the research takes you in a direction and the writing takes you in a direction that you have to go and do research. So you discover things you never thought you would. <laughs>
0: Mm. Yeah, learning so many different things that you never thought that you would be able to, I guess, talk about. <laughs> yes.
3: Well, nobody wants me to talk about them. <laughs>
1: you must be good at trivia nights then. Um, yeah, particular.
3: on very specialised <laughs> things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, it's um, all right. We all have our random things that we could. Yeah. I, um, I read somewhere that's like, you know, I guess like set questions and things like that, and it's like oh, like to learn more about somebody or something. And one of them is like, what could you give a forty-minute lecture on with no preparation? <laughs> oh wow! We that's all a have great, a weird yeah. topic. Like that. we
1: all have a weird topic we could do. <laughs> so, what's um, yours?
3: I have to ask. What What are your oh, weird topics?
1: Well, Michelle's is the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> I, great. I can. Yeah, I can do that in in no time flat.
3: Fantastic. So <laughs> <Yeah. interesting. laughs>
1: and Caitlin, what would yours be? Oh. Probably just Harry Potter would be the easiest yeah, probably topic Harry to go Potter. for. <laughs> but you could also talk about Friends, like you know <laughs> that backwards and inside out. Oh, the, yeah. the TV
3: series? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. for you. That's, that was a forbidden pleasure of mine. <laughs> Buffy, I could, I could bore you to talk- death about Buffy if you did.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh good <laughs> but, choice. <laughs> yeah, I could probably also talk about like Veronica Mars or any of my favourite TV shows I could just yeah. like slip into doing this <laughs> lecture about it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, Julian, I'm really interested to know, like, did you have any challenges with Opal Dragonfly that you didn't have with Palace of Tears? Like, did you have a deadline that you didn't have uh, with Palace of Tears?
3: Yes, of course. The, <laughs> I know
1: that's something a lot of authors say about their second books. Yes,
3: that's right. Yes, you've got all the time in the world to write that first book. And, you, and as I said, you better take that time because you you know, publishers are going to take one look and that's the look that matters, So you know. So be in the very best shape you can. Um, and in my case, I had to win over the heart of an agent, first of all, as well. Um, so that was important that uh, she liked the book. And then, of course, yeah, the, you know, they're looking at a lot of books. So um, I took, I took a few years. I'm trying to remember how many now. At least three, I think, to write the first book, which is actually quite fast in my in my no. <laughs> yeah
0: i'm like oh that's actually not that long no. given
1: the depth of research and yeah. the complicated storylines and stuff mm. for that book mm. yeah no that
3: book really you know it just flowed so nicely um but yes no we we did we had to kind of slightly renegotiate the deadline they wanted it incredibly fast i think they were very happy with the performance of the first book so they were sort of saying mm. Such and such a date, and we sort of said, "Can we just push that out a little bit?" <laughs> and I did hit my deadline, um, oh, so good, I was really proud good. Of Yeah, and uh, but we we did some rewriting. To be honest, you know, there were things that weren't quite right, and as I said, you know, I really value that feedback. Um, some things ne- needed to be brought up a bit more, and um, you know, the romance was strengthened. I think in the, in the rewrite, the relationships with the sisters. You know, that very troubled relationship Isabel has with her sisters that was brought out more. So there was a rewrite done quite quickly, as I remember, I think about four weeks. Um, but, and you know, a book is working when you can do quite, you can do quite substantial rewrites. You know, the world of it so well and the characters so well that, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, if someone says well we really feel this needs more focus you know that comes quite quickly to you so there's some parts of that book are al- almost a first draft in that rewrite but they they you wouldn't know they just worked really nicely they really came quickly to me in that mm. um, redraft So, yes, the second novel is The Challenge because now your publisher (laughs) wants it uh, ready for market. Um,
0: And there was probably, I guess, expectation as well after the
1: success of your first novel.
3: Oh, well, of course, yes, yes. You know, and that's – yes, of course, that's a double-edged sword, but it's nice to be –
1: Did you struggle with that at all? Like, as a writer, I know it can be hard sometimes then having that expectation and living up to it.
3: um, No, I think I'm more sort of – uh we not weary what's the right word more like oh my god number three you know I, i'm like <laughs> you know you don't want to keep doing the same trick over and over again i don't anyway mm. and yet obviously you want mm. to give readers who've been loyal to you something that they recognize so i'm hoping mm. while the two books i think the two books are in some ways very different but in other ways Uh, They have a a, quite a lush style and they're very vivid. They're underpinned by a lot of research. They do both have a kind of twist in them. I mean, the first book's got this incredible twist, as you know, that nobody has guessed. Um, The the second book's less that kind of big thriller twist thing, although there's a couple of little twists along the way. Um, These are all elements that I think you could say the books share in common. But, you know, I want to surprise myself and surprise readers a little bit too um, while giving them the same pleasure that I gave them in the first two books. So um, I'm going to try some different things in this next book, you know, I hope. (laughs) I've only just started, so I can't say too much. Can
1: you give us a little bit of a... A sneak peek at it like it sounds from from what you said it sounds like something i am
3: dying to read oh. so
1: is there going to be like sydney razor gangs uh, and stuff yes, like there that will be
3: uh, it, uh, yes yes, yes <laughs> i know razor gang, yes I've, I've been
1: that's like my favorite i love that about sydney yeah. it's such an interesting history yes,
3: yes i've done a lot of reading around um, tilly and uh, kate Um, But I'm going to probably set it right on the end of that period. And there's a guy called Phil Jeffs, who kind of won the Razor Wars. In fact, poor old Tilly, I think ended up in England and Kate ended up in Long Bay and their Mm. empires collapsed. And then a guy called Phil the Jew Jeffs, they used to say things like… Yes, I remember
1: him from Underwood. Yes,
3: not not a a nice man, but um, very very successful, had nightclubs. So I love the idea of Mm. these quite sophisticated nightclubs he'd run, and he had the protection of the state government and the police to look after him. And I think they were also his clients, Mm -hmm. come by and have a late drink and do some cocaine or whatever it might be that would go on um and so i just thought oh there's an interesting and also it takes us into the early 30s and the beginning of the depression and so that's Mm. a great time as well so i get to Mm -hmm. interesting Interesting time time. (laughs) and the other thing the thing that really (laughs) attracts me is the bohemians of the cross the artists Mm. the writers the poets so my main character is a woman who's a journalist in the daytime she works for the australian What's it called? The Australian Women's Mirror, which is a magazine I've discovered, um, yeah. which was kind of almost the precursor of the Women's Weekly back in the 20s. Lovely. And she, so she's a journo by day writing, you know, doing her job. At nighttime, she's trying to write a crime novel um except she then you know gets involved in the real world of crime and murder and mayhem and it's like oh my god you know i've got to it sounds like solve a real crime
1: this problem. sounds like my type of book it like really does. oh yeah. crime journalist i'm in i love yep. it it sounds so good <laughs> well, we'll see. i actually just read a book i read a book recently oh, i forget when it when it was set i feel like it was in the mid 30s but um and when I say set, it's a true thing. I just can't remember what the time frame mm-hmm. was. But um, it's the shark arm murder oh. in Sydney. I don't know if you've heard of that I before. Have. But it's. Yeah. So I heard it on my favorite murder. And then I found this out of print random book called the shark arm murders, um, in, in a secondhand bookstore. And I read it and it's just such, it's such a fascinating case. So anyone who's not familiar with it, um, basically they capture a tiger shark, a live tiger shark, and they have it in, um, the, Coogee Bay swimming baths Mm. in Sydney Mm. on Anzac Day in I think, I feel like it's like 1935 or it's like mid-30s. And um, then the shark vomits up an arm. (laughs) And so they're like, oh, like maybe – like they just they don't know but the arm's got a very particular tattoo on it of like two people boxing and they put it in the paper and then someone comes forward and is like this is my brother's tattoo and he's been missing and he was involved in the um in like the underbelly sort of in the crime um world like he was involved in some building and construction scams for people and so it's all to do with like the underbelly of Sydney and they could never prove who killed they have a very strong idea of who killed him but it was never proven in court fantastic
3: that's yeah. right it's just fascinating those- really. I mean if you wrote that as- no you couldn't make that if up you're a fiction <laughs> writer they'd go oh come on that's outrageous yeah
1: <laughs> that would never happen would never yeah happen. and for it mm-hmm. to happen back then, for them to have the level of – I was just surprised by the amount – like, they got fingerprints and stuff like that. I was amazed given how, like, like the rudimentary technology. the technology yeah. would be back yeah. then. This is a, a random and very interesting case. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, I having loved um, Underbelly Razor and um, also Justine Labolestia. Yes, Razor um, host. Yes, Razorhurst. I was like, what's the name? Um, I loved that. And I just, I went, when I was in Sydney, visiting Sydney once, I went to um, the police museum's exhibition of, um, I think it's, oh, what's it called? City of... Shadows. City of Shadows. Yes. Yes. And the the guy that was on the front cover of the book that they ended up making mm. very creepy looking guy mm. we will have to find the photo for the show notes but I um interviewed Justine for the release of Razorhurst and she was and I was saying it's funny like I immediately thought of him and then I remember reading in the book that he that guy that photo was the inspiration for one of the mm. main baddies I mm. guess and I just loved that connection and mm. I loved seeing all that it was basically just old mug shots and old crime mm. photos from the 30s and it was incredible, so I am already like no no pressure or anything, but I'm super super excited for book three. Thank you, <laughs> me
3: too. Um, I guess they that 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 archive of amazing photos they've just held another exhibition at the um, Sydney Museum. I think it might still be on called Underworld. I think, and I went down and had a look at that, mm. and the, you know they have just it's such a rich archive, and the faces are extraordinary of those. Uh, you know, petty crims and strong men and, you know, cocaine Ooh. peddlers. And and I, I particularly love the con men and women, you know, who pull these amazing scams, you know, and claim to be single mums and widowers and milk money out of uh, rich Eastern suburbs women and this sort of thing, you know, the, the real scammers, you know, they're amazing characters. I've got to have a couple of them in the book, I think. So, yeah. And I just love this idea of a crime writer discovering the real world of crime so she kind of brings some Mm. of her fictional skills to possibly working out the crime. So, you know, I'm getting a little bit into, I mean, I'm very aware of the Rolly Sinclair books by Solari and and, uh, Mm. there's a lot of nostalgia at the moment for this period. A book called um, uh, what is it called? The Portrait of Molly Dean which is about a woman Mm -hmm. murdered in Melbourne that I'm just about to read. Uh, Again, 1920s you know, the dark city, the whole kind of, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I think it it feels, it's funny because it's close enough that we can feel that we're still walking in the footsteps of this history, whereas, you know, once you get back past the 20th century, I think people start to think it feels more distant. But like the 20s, the 30s, especially still in Sydney when you can still see Things so evidently on the street, and you can walk through the rocks yes. or things like that, and you can see these homes and it, yeah. I think it's maybe maybe we feel more we feel of a connection like it's closer. When yeah. really it's 2018, it's still almost hundred yes, years yes ago. And yeah, but for somehow somehow it feels like closer. closer. Yeah.
3: That's a really interesting mm. challenge. And, uh, you know, I suppose I could ask you that question. With opal dragonfly, you're back in the mid-19th century. So uh, even though you're in mm-hmm. Sydney and there's parts of Sydney that are still recognisable, like the rocks and, and um, you know, the botanic gardens and what have you, how did you find relating to um, people with a very different mindset, you know, who still believe in the empire and God and, and uh, the, you know, the deserving poor and they have a very different way of looking at the world? How did you find relating to characters like that
1: well I think it is it is hard because that that mindset of still being so you know like you said part of the empire and stuff like that is so foreign yes. it's yeah. so very foreign but I think you can easily slip back into understanding it but it still doesn't feel quite as close because that that is so yeah it's so foreign like the fact that like my mum at school for example would they would still sing like God Save the Queen and stuff just <laughs> seems so bizarre to me it just yeah, yeah so I guess the whole Empire thing is yeah that's very very different. Frightening I guess thing we, is
3: they yeah. still sing God Save the Queen at some of the state schools where my kids went. So.
1: Really oh <laughs> my gosh I know wow
3: isn't that a worry wow
1: <laughs> actually I was um. So obviously, so we're going to give up, like we're, we're pre-recording this for when I go overseas and um, we're recording it on the day of the Royal Wedding. Mm. Um, and as part of that, so I, Julie and I work at the local newspaper and, you um, know, we were like, you know what, it'd be fun. Let's look back at 1954, which was the year that the Queen came to Australia mm. and she came to Rockhampton um, and the bulletin, the morning bulletin of the day did like oh, so much detail <laughs> about the visit. It and you know, because it was it was an amazing thing. Then, like you know, the, this population. We, it said that our population swelled from forty thousand to sixty thousand people because wow. everyone came in from all the surrounding districts to see the queen. And there were. <laughs> I was telling Caitlin last night that there was a line in there that was like fifty or sixty school children fainted. But the, you know, basically, they're saying that was nothing compared to the thousands who were there. <laughs> um, and and they were. <laughs> and that was just a throwaway line at the end. But they were. It's so it's interesting. Like, oh, don't to see the detail and the and the reverence yeah. which with with which people um, still held the empire then mm. and yeah to go back even further when it's even even closer and even stronger yeah. is it's, it's so, so it, yeah it's so interesting and I think I think you can still relate and stuff but um, it definitely. Yeah, it just—it still feels very different, mm. and yeah, and very foreign. Mm. Mm.
3: And that you know that we still live in that long yeah. shadow, I think, of loyalty to Britain and the uh, sense. That-
1: well, I mean, you only have to look at all the royal wedding stuff and how invested. I mean, it's become much more about celebrity now, yes. I guess. Yeah. But it is amazing how how much with with how much reverence we still treat them yeah. as well, yeah, yeah. It's because. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. It's a whole other discussion. Yes, I know.
3: <laughs> my my mum yeah. remembers that fifty four. In fact, I found a newspaper clipping where she gets mentioned about being probably one of those oh. girls who you know. I, mean, I don't think <laughs> she fainted, but she was certainly very excited about when Queen yeah. came to Mudgee. So yes, she did the whistle stop uh, tour all through the yeah. all through Australia and
1: all the regional areas. She still yeah. insists
3: on watching the Queen's message on uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> No. Christmas Day, isn't it? I
1: think I. Yep. I feel like my mum for for like twenty years still had a videotape of Diana's funeral, <gasps> just stored somewhere because like because see my when I was in high school, I watched the I watched Kate and Will's and their royal wedding and stuff, mm-hmm. and I was so excited. And my mum was like, "This is exactly like when I was younger. I watched Charles and Diana. Oh, you know, yeah. like it's it's so funny how you have the different generations of royals mm. and. Actually, Julian, are you a fan of The Crown?
3: I should be. I haven't got to it yet. I've got so much <laughs> other television I'm watching at the moment that I haven't got oh, to it, but it looks amazing. It's,
1: it's so good. wonderful. It's so wonderful. Definitely yeah, recommend very that one. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, Is that the one with very,
3: Smith playing uh, the Duke of Edinburgh or have I got that mixed up?
1: Yes. Yes, I don't he's know very I could, good. I couldn't
3: get over seeing Doctor Who with the Queen. That would be –
1: <laughs> no, it's surprising. Like it really you don't know. You don't feel like that at no, all when you're watching no. it. It's so yeah. it's so different. Yes. Mm. Yes. And he's such a dick. He <laughs> <laughs> can be. Yeah. He can be, yeah. He's just it's such a and um Claire Foy as the queen oh, and she's, she's magnificent. She's lovely, isn't she? yeah. Yeah. So you still so, got I'm a soft spot,
3: you know? He's still there it is.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're still we're still Yeah, and I still like love, although I must say I totally spaced on, didn't realise Kate was pregnant until they were like, oh, royal baby's been born. I was like, oh, whoops, I thought that was like some tabloid (laughs) joke. Because I just haven't, yeah, I've just been out of that world. (laughs) Honestly, I think Kate and Will's have been a bit overshadowed by. Meghan Markle. Yeah, Yeah. She's feeling the
3: headlines at the moment. I think what's really interesting (laughs) about all this is, you know, that this is the challenge for historical fiction writers is to be, To find something that's relatable to a readership now, you know, that you can can find those threads that's still meaningful for you now, you know, like partly just human Mm -hmm. interest, you know, I want the main character to get what they need, there's something at stake, you know, they want love, they want marriage. They want recognition. You know, Isabel wants to be an artist. She wants to be a success in her own right. In that sense, she's a bit pushy as a woman of of her times. You know, she's not exactly what I'd call a kick-ass heroine, but she is definitely, (laughs) uh, she's a woman who's, you know, a little bit unconventional and takes risks. And hopefully that's something modern readers can relate to. But at the same time, you Mm. have to be true as much as possible. Um, I think to the to the values and the and the attitudes of the time. You know, to, if you completely yeah. distort it, I don't think you're you're being a conscientious historical fiction writer. So you have to really um, walk a line where you find things that are different. I find the differences fascinating. Actually, mm. there's much, you know. While I want to write a story that engages your emotions and is gripping. Um, I'm also want to show you. Look at look, my God, isn't it amazing? They actually thought like this, and they did this sort of stuff. Isn't it bizarre? <laughs> yeah, it's really bizarre. Wonderful.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Julian. We really, really appreciate. It. It's been such a fascinating discussion. Well, thank you. Um, where can people find you on social media um, if they want to learn more about the books yep. or if um, they want to follow yep. you?
3: I've got an Instagram account. So it's actually Leatherdale Julian because I buggered up the Julian Leatherdale. So <laughs> Julian Leatherdale has got nothing on it. But if you look up Leatherdale Julian, the old nice thing turns up there. Um, I've got a, f- a Facebook page, a personal one and an author one. So go looking for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's where I'm posting most of the good news about reviews. I have to boast for one minute before you finish. The Mm -hmm. UK and USA-based Historical Novel Society, I think it's called, they do uh, reviews of historical fiction from all over the world. So currently they've got up to 17,500 reviews of historical fiction books. Oh, my
1: Uh goodness. Anyway, I got a review
3: from them two weeks ago in which they compared me to Austin and Dickens. <laughs> and oh, often, I was destined, destined to be an Australian literary classic. So, oh, does it get better that than that? I know, you it. know, like I was so kind of amazed. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I mean, getting... <laughs> ooh, congratulations. Thank you. and, and all,
1: well deserved.
3: All that's posted <laughs> out there. And I've got a website under my name, Julian Netherdale, as well, which I try to keep up to date. So,
1: <laughs> Caitlin, where can people find us?
0: Oh, at Better Words Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, And, of course, our website, betterwordspodcast.com. Thank you so much. Bye.
2: Bye.